chapter 1. Unless you've got a Hebrew Bible, then Jonah chapter 2. We've got but one verse today. And as we saw from Genesis 15, sometimes one verse is all that matters. Uh, it can mean a whole lot more than we think it can mean. Uh, I hope it is well with your soul this morning. And as a, a, a lead up to this one verse, it was not well with Jonah's soul. He had problems. And so that is where we are in the story of Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Jesus, as our prophet, speak the truth to us. Reveal our need for salvation and your plan of salvation to us. Jesus, as our priest, comfort those who are guilty or afflicted through your sacrifice for us, through your continuing intercession for us. Jesus, as our King, lead us, protect us, and discipline us according to our need. And we ask these things for your glory as well as for our good. Amen. During one of the dark periods of my life, the pastoral transition that seemingly had no end, uh, there was a dark period within the dark period. It was one of those strange experiences that uh, Amy and I will never forget. It, it was a, long, a lengthy sort of experience. I was stated supply at a PCA church. I was at that point not PCA myself. And so when they had the presbytery meeting uh, to examine a man to transfer in to receive a call at that particular church, I, of course, was interested and was there but unable to speak. Imagine that for a moment, folks. It was difficult. It was a great trial. <laughs> but that wasn't the real trial. The real trial occurred when this man, uh, in the midst of his examination, said that he wasn't sure if the events in the book of Jonah, as well as the events in the book of Isaiah, uh, sorry, Isaiah Job, uh, the two J's, were not historical. He thought that perhaps Jonah in particular was a parable or some sort of allegory. I was a little shaken because he had gone to the same seminary I had. What's going on with this? He was initially approved, but then there was a complaint. And so as a result of the complaint, it was determined that he was to be re-examined. And I'll pick up with that later on. But it gets back to the reality here that this one verse was the source of all the problem. I'm sure he didn't think the idea of Jonah being called to go to Nineveh was a great problem. It's when you get to this one verse right here that the fish swallowed up Jonah that a lot of people have a hard time with the historicity of these events. This is, in a sense, a test for our understanding of Scripture. 
What we really believe about the nature of Scripture is it speaking truthfully or not. As we look at this one verse, the one thing I want you to really understand from this is that the faithful God that we've been talking about here in Jonah delivers His unfaithful people. Now that's really kind of what's going on here as we talk about this. But let's begin with the reality that disobedience brings destruction. Now isn't that a happy message? Thankfully, that's not the only part of this message. But the author has created some suspense in his telling of what happens to Jonah because Jonah is hurled into the sea and then we have the sailors going to to dry land because the, the storm has stopped and they worship there and they make sacrifices and vows and we're like, you should be going, what about Jonah? Well, what about Jonah? Jonah seems to be as good as dead because Jonah, most likely, can't swim. Jonah is in the sea, the water. He is sinking down into the sea. He's essentially doing a Jason Bourne imitation. Jonah is in a mess. But the reason that Jonah is in this mess is because of his own disobedience. He heard the call of God to go to Nineveh and to preach against that great city, and he went down to Joppa, down into the boat, in an attempt to go all the way to Tarshish, 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 as we saw back in chapter 1, early part of chapter 1. It's not only his disobedience, but his lack of repentance that is the issue here. He had opportunity after opportunity to say, Okay, Lord, I get it. I need to go to Nineveh. And he didn't. His solution to the problem of the storm was, Hurl me overboard, not bring me back. I need to go to Nineveh. He's in this problem, this predicament, this dangerous situation because he has been disobedient and has been lacking repentance. And so it is Jonah's faithless decisions that have brought him to this place, stuck and about to drown in the middle of the sea. Jonah, being a man of faith in some measure, I'm surprised, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised rather if if in his mind was going through Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He is about to make his bed in Sheol. Will God be there? When have you brought destruction into your life? What have you made some faithless decisions, uh, you know, when you've brought destruction and despair and all of those sorts of things in your life. It doesn't have to be as radical as being lost at sea and and, uh, about to be swallowed by a great fish. But sometimes we can bring much harm to ourselves by the choices that we make. As I think about what happened as... uh, that presbytery examined that man and that presbytery made decisions about that man. It was as as if Hades had opened. This man was re-examined as he should have been. 
Uh, This man was found lacking, as I believe he should have been. But you know, what happens when you mess with an idol is that you get pushback. And this church really wanted that guy. Despite the fact that his uh, understanding of Scripture, his theology of Scripture was suffering some serious problems, they still wanted their guy. And so there was conflict now that emerges between the presbytery and the congregation. There was conflict that was emerging between the the leadership and some of the members of the church who thought they should move on from this man. And unfortunately, there was also conflict between that session and their stated supply. All brought by faithless decisions. Conflict and destruction wreaking havoc within congregations, within families, within presbyteries. Unless God intervenes for Jonah, unless God, the God that Jonah is running from, intervenes, Jonah is going to drown. Drowning is on the list of least favorite ways to die for people. As someone who has almost drowned twice, I don't recommend it to anybody. As I was reading the book, The Perfect Storm, uh, one of the things he does in that book, which makes it rather lengthy, uh, that you don't find in the movie, is he goes on all of these uh, rabbit trails, okay, uh, to explain certain things. And one of the rabbit trails that he goes on, that Nikki, I'm sure, does not appreciate, is drowning. And he describes the experience of drowning for a number of pages, and um, which sets you up for the end of the book and thinking about these men in this boat who are about to drown. Sebastian Junger, who is the man who wrote the book Perfect Storm, says the only thing more unpleasant than running out of air is breathing in water. Some who have survived the drowning... And it's interesting, one of, one of the, someone online said, the first time I drowned, how many, I wanted, how many times did you drown? But someone had described it as like breathing in lava. And so imagine my surprise as I'm, uh, I'm preparing this sermon and reading all of these things and the book, the novel that I was reading this week, talked about waterboarding and the experience of feeling like drowning as water gets in the lungs. Not a pleasant thing. Very frightening. And that is what Jonah is about to experience. You see, initially your throat constricts so that water can't get in, but then there's a battle within you because you need air. And at some point, the air that you have uh, is no longer useful to you and that It's almost like uh, your body fights against itself. It has to have air, and so the throat unconstricts, and your lungs fill with water, and you drown. That's what Jonah is facing. Certain death in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. Let's stop here for a moment and sense the danger. 
Let's not sort of objectify this as the, that's that man, you know, way long ago in that place way far away. But let us remember that what Jonah represents in his real life experience is that life apart from the, the, the fresh mercies of God, this is a man who is where he is, not because he has to be there, but because he chooses to be there, because he refuses to take hold of the mercies of God. And we can do that too. When we are, are guilty and we can be prone to despair and run from the God who has chosen to have mercy upon us. And we can place ourselves in these very dangerous places. As we think of Jonah who is about to be destroyed, let us not forget that he is going to, he is supposed to be going to a people who deserve to be destroyed. And Jonah actually comes from a group of people, the Israelites, who deserve to be destroyed. And so his real life experience is intended to point not just to the Ninevites, but it's also meant to point back to the Israelites. That they were in danger of destruction because of their own disobedience and lack of repentance. And let us not think that we are better than them. In Luke 13, Jesus mentions two events that take place, one of which was the the falling of a tower. Or he mentions those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so, as we listen to this story of Jonah, let us not think we are better than him, but we too will perish lest we repent. Let us remember that the wages of sin is death, and in the here and now, our disobedience can bring destruction. Let's move to our second point. Slightly better than the first. God's deliverance can look like destruction. You see, God is faithful even to His unfaithful prophets. Now, let's keep that in mind for a second. He's the prophet. Who's supposed to be holy? The prophet. Who's to be the example to the rest of the Israelites? The prophet. And it's the prophet, the leader of Israel, who is disobedient. Let us remember that leaders can sometimes be disappointment, be disappointing. Our trust is not to be in them, but to be in the Lord. So, God is faithful, even though His, His prophet is not faithful, and we see His faithfulness revealed here, and the Lord appointed a great fish. Providence is noted as God's governing all of His creatures and their actions. And so God is governing the actions of this great fish. 
We've already seen great wind, great storm, great fear. Now we have a great fish. And God, but God is governing this fish. But here we have a problem for some people, not for, I hope, most of us in this room. Some people think it was a whale, some people think it was a fish, and some people get lost in all of that as if it was really important. We, we talked about this in Sunday school, and, and remember, this is written before Aristotle existed. The scientific categories for sea life did not exist. And so when the author of Jonah says, great fish, it's not like, oh, can't be a whale because it's a fish. Don't worry about that stuff. And yet so many people get trapped in that. I, I found my way to the annotated Bible skeptics, uh, or the, the annotated skeptics Bible, rather, website. And they had this passage, which says, great fish. And then from some version which they didn't mention, they had uh, the Matthew 12 passage. And in that, pa- in that particular translation, it was translated as sea monster. And look, look, the Bible is contradictions. Come on. Really? But that's what people who don't want to believe cling to. Something that appears to be a contradiction that isn't a contradiction. The word that is, that is used in the Matthew account can be translated fish, whale, or sea monster. It's a matter of translation. I'm still not sure why they translated it that way. That's a different story. But we have skeptics like this young man coming for a call who undermine the authority of the Scriptures because they can't necessarily understand what the Scriptures or want, or find what the Scriptures say to be believable. Because what happens next is God appointed this fish to swallow up Jonah. Okay, so this is not Flipper the dolphin who suddenly appears to somehow you know have Jonah put his arms around it and he swims to the shore, carry him away. Jonah is swallowed. Now, some people have a hard time with that. That's the crux of the issue. This is why some people reject the story as historical. And other people can reject the whole Bible as a result of this. There is a slippery slope in this case. And I I believe that this young man, as he thought about the Scriptures, was doing a couple of things, one of which was denying the historicity of the text. There's nothing here that would indicate uh, at all that this is a parable or this is an allegory. This is a man who is attested to in numerous places in the Scriptures as a real historical person. So it's not a fantasy story about this man. Everything else within this story makes perfect sense. This is the one thing that we don't grasp. But it also creates a situation where we begin to deny the supernaturality. That word doesn't sound right. The supernatural nature and quality of the Christian faith. That we have a God who is able to do things that you can't do. So 
Some people try to hide behind, not hide behind, they try to find examples when people have survived in the belly of a whale. And for a short time in the 19th century, there was the story of James Bartley, who was on the Star of the East. And many of you may have heard about James Bartley. He was a man who supposedly was in a, on a whaling ship. He was on one of the boats that had gone out to harpoon a whale, and he fell over. And the story is, is that he was then swallowed by that whale, which then three days later was caught by this same ship. And when they cut the whale open, there's James. Thanks, guys! It made all the papers, and it was a very popular sort of thing. But there's one problem. In the listing of the Star of the East, they find it was not a whaling ship. Oops. There is an account of a uh, Spanish fisherman not too long ago by the name of Luigi Marquez. He sounds Italian, too, with Luigi. Who says that he uh, fell overboard during a great storm, was swallowed by a fish, of some large measure, and then was flushed out. I'm not sure what in the world that means, and I'm not sure I want to know what that means three days later, but uh, people would, people did say he was missing, and then he was found, but we're not sure exactly what happened. There's no verification of this. But all of these attempts, I believe, missed the point because what happened was actually a miracle. That God did something that doesn't ordinarily happen that God sent the fish to swallow him, and yet he lived. Miracles defy our human explanations. They are things that, as I mentioned, are not supposed to happen. And the idea of being swallowed has a background here. For instance, the Red Sea swallowed the Egyptians. The earth opened up and swallowed rebellious Korah, in Numbers 16. In other words, judgment. This was to be understood as the judgment of the Lord in some fashion. God did draw him out of many waters, but drew him into the belly of the whale or fish. Confined. Pitch black. Really smelly. He is in a, in a sense a form of solitary confinement. He is in the ultimate adult timeout. He's stuck in the corner. Okay, on the on the stool, or in our house, he's sitting on the step. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't know what's happening. It's not like Jonah can see, know what's actually going on. He doesn't know where he probably is. He doesn't know why he's there. He is expecting, most likely, to die in the belly of this great fish. The Puritan William Gurnall notes, The thing which has come to destroy you could be the very thing God has sent to bring you to land. Ordinarily, this would mean his death, but God is going to use it to bring about his deliverance and salvation. 
And so we see that Yahweh is faithful. He's already delivered Jonah from drowning, but he has not yet produced the desired result, which is repentance. And so Jonah continues to experience this redemptive wrath in the belly of the whale. Sometimes God does indeed press us hard in order to bring about our repentance. And that's because our hearts can be that hard. He is not doing this lightly or without thought. He's not being mean as He does this to Jonah, but He is trying to gain the heart of the prophet or regain the heart of the prophet. This is a God of relentless love who doesn't stop, but who presses in. He's giving and not giving Jonah space at the same time, but in a different sense. Have you ever felt swallowed up? Have you ever thought that you would be destroyed in the midst of your circumstances? That is, in a sense, God's relentless, redemptive love at work, despite the appearances. So in the short term, the way God delivers often looks like destruction, which can lead us to despair. Thirdly, God's deliverance comes through Jesus' destruction. Here's the good news, finally, that God's deliverance comes through Jesus' destruction. We get to the, the problem of the fish, so to speak. And the Reformation, when they were debating issues of theology, they said that our final authority is Scripture, that phrase, sola scriptura. And one of the things that is found in the Westminster Confession under that chapter is the idea of the analogy of Scripture, that if we're trying to understand the meaning of a difficult text, we go to a simpler text to see what it means. And so we're going to go to what I think is a simpler text, Although it ain't an easy one, we're going to the one we read in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus refers to this very passage when He is asked for a sign. When Jesus is asked, He speaks of it as if it was history, not a fanciful tale. He speaks of it not only as history, but as though it is a type, something that is pointing to his own work. You see, the religious leaders had demanded yet another sign to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the authenticating function of signs and miracles in the Scriptures. And we we saw that when we read from Exodus. Moses, how will they know that I came? And so God gives him a bunch of signs that he was meant to give that would authenticate the fact that Moses had been in the presence of God and had been sent from the presence of God for the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And so these religious leaders are basically saying, show me the authenticating sign so I can know that you are the Messiah. This demand, unfortunately, Jesus says, came from hard, evil hearts. They were an evil and adulterous generation, and essentially there is no sign that would lead them to believe. Here's the rob. 
Sometimes in debates with atheists, one of the most famous ones is uh, there's one Greg Bonson had with an atheist, and uh, this is this is what atheists sometimes will do. God, if you're really there, you will show yourself to me now. God does not do party tricks. God does not come on demand. He's God. You're not. And so we need to see this request for a sign coming not from a heart that wants to believe, but coming from hearts that don't want to believe. They're hearts that are unfaithful to Yahweh. Which is why Jesus called them an evil and adulterous generation. They'd gone after other gods. And so He says to them, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. In other words, Jonah's experience points us not just to the experience of Israel, but also to the future upcoming, from that point of view, experience of Jesus as the Messiah. You see, Jonah was delivered from death in and through the fish. His message is going to be authenticated as a prophet by withstanding this water ordeal that involved the great fish. We're not sure exactly how. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to chapter 3. But that's what's supposed to be going on. Both Jesus and Jonah experienced judgment in order to bring salvation to others. Jonah experienced this judgment in order to bring salvation first to Nineveh and then also to his own people. Jesus experiences this judgment in similar fashion to bring salvation to Jew and Gentile, his own people. Jesus was not in the was not in the belly of the fish but Jesus was in the heart of the earth he was dead he was buried he was in Sheol or Hades and Jesus was resurrected from death for us let us be reminded of the words of Corrie Temboom there is no pit so deep that Christ is deeper still. There's no hole you can find yourself in, no struggle or affliction that is so great that Christ cannot find you there. But He is able to reach even deeper and pull you out. It was because of His resurrection we see in Romans chapter 1 that He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the resurrection has an authenticating work as well as the work for our salvation. Jesus wanted this, these people to know that He was greater than Solomon, that He was greater than Jonah, that He was greater in this, this whole chapter, chapter 12, He's greater than the temple. He was greater than David. If you go back and and look at chapter 12, all of these things are there. He wants them to know that all of these things that they esteemed and looked up to were nothing compared to Jesus. He was greater than them all. 
And His salvation is greater than anything that they could promise. Jesus, greater than David, Solomon, Jonah, and the temple, He overcame death itself. And here's the good news, is that when we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, His destruction was ours, as well as His deliverance is ours. That's Paul's whole point in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I died with Christ. I was raised with Christ. This is not the only place Paul talks about this. Romans 6, as we've seen before. It's all about that union with Christ. That is the key to understanding Christianity. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have just cause, or as some of those Puritans would say, we have warrant to see, to trust in, and to rest in the mercy of God in our affliction instead of falling into despair in our affliction. When we think of the providence of God, remember, that idea that uh, God governs the actions of all of His creatures, okay? Or governs His creatures and all their actions, rather. The providence of God rests in the hands of one who died and rose again to deliver you from sin. That should comfort us. Because... Our circumstances are determined by one who loved us so intensely, relentlessly, faithfully. Yesterday we were catching up on our shows when the kids were resting. We watched This Is Us. And at the end of this episode, there was this allusion to that he's like his father. And then they showed one of the characters reach for a uh, thing of pain pills. And I said, no, they're going to make him an addict. God is not a screenwriter trying to make a tragedy that will get high ratings because you'll watch it and cry at the end every week. God is someone who is devoted to your life, to your holiness, to your happiness in Him instead of everything else. And so as we think about Him being in control of our circumstances, governing us and our actions, let us remember who He is as the relentless, faithful lover of our souls so that we trust. So Jonah was really in the belly of the fish. It looked like he's done for, destroyed by an angry God. Soon, Israel would be in the belly of Assyria, exile, 
looked like they were done for, looked like they had, too had been destroyed by an angry God. But they were dealing with a faithful God who used first the belly of the fish and then the exile in order to deliver them. Jesus tells us that He is greater than Jonah. Jesus tells us that He delivers us from death by spending three days in the heart of the earth. That Jesus was in Sheol, Hades, or death. Our earthly problems should not create dismay or despair. We see that they are guided by the One who suffered for us and are intended to do good to us. And so first, let us embrace Him who died and rose again as Lord and Savior and continue to trust Him. And when you're in the belly of the whale, metaphorically speaking, Remember Him who, is, who was in the heart of the earth and continue to cry for mercy, for certainly He will deliver. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as You set before us this day Your holy prophet as an awful example of Your wrath against all who are rebellious and disobedient to You, O grant that we may learn to subject our thoughts and affections to Your Word, that we may not reject anything that pleases You, but learn both to live and to die to You, that we may ever regard Your will and undertake nothing but what You have testified is approved by You, so that we may fight under Your banners and through life obey Your Word, until at length we reach that blessed rest which has been obtained for us by the blood of Your only begotten Son and is laid up for us in heaven through the hope of His Gospel. Amen.